0: amen amen you can be seated we're in luke chapter 12 today actually going to close that chapter out which means that as far as chapters go we will have completed half of luke i think we're actually past it if you count the verses uh, i don't i don't do things like that but uh, i think i've heard that said once um somewhere along the way so so we'll be halfway through luke and i know that you'll feel a whole lot better when we are uh Luke chapter 12 going to be in verses 49 through 59, page 871 I think in the Bibles in the chairs. If you don't have a Bible of your own, that is our gift to you. Take it. Uh the the word of God works. It's powerful. We'd long for you to have it. There are notes on the U version live event. If you have U version on your uh phone or on your, don't don't look at Facebook. It's not going to be helpful to you at this point, but but definitely U version and the notes that are there uh you can take home and and just consider these things through the week. So, all right. So here we are. Uh, we've been in the middle of this long teaching block from Jesus. We've been dealing with it um, uh, really for several weeks now. And in the midst of this is this controversy beginning to be seen. And it's it's a controversy. And in, in, in fact, if you think about it, most people in our in our day and age, most people don't like to deal with the reality of the controversy that surrounded Christ. We like to remember the you know the the good Jesus, the one that was healing people and making people happy, and you know that 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 really ultra compassionate Savior that just kind of met people where they where where they were. Nobody likes to think about the controversy that surrounded him for for much of his ministry. I mean, people would flock to him; they came looking and checking him out, seeking to understand him. And when he when they'd show up, yes, he would heal them, he would make them better, he would speak to them, he would treat them with compassion and respect, but he also confronted them in their sin. He confronted the false teachings, the false beliefs that they had, and especially for the religious elites of the day, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, you know, uh, th- these people that were seemingly living as if they had no sin at all, these self-righteous people. He was, man, he'd just get downright confrontational with them. Well, you can imagine how they reacted. In fact, we've seen it over these last several weeks that they bird up, you know, they bowed out their chest and they resisted his teaching. But that didn't slow him down. He didn't hide. He didn't draw back from it. He didn't pull away. In fact, what he did was he just got really intentional. Some of the confrontation with the, the religious elites, the, the self-righteous people of that day, some of it was direct, and he, he just spoke directly to them. Some of it was indirect, and, and instead of withdrawing from them, he just began to teach his disciples particularly in particular, he teaches disciples about how they were to live in light of the controversy that was beginning to surround him. Luke chapter 11 ends, and it tells us that the Pharisees and the scribes had begun to seek to trip Jesus up, like they were testing him. They were saying things, provoking him to say things that they hoped would would, would just demonstrate that he was a false teacher or that would disqualify him in some way. It never happened, never 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 occurred, and so so he turns and he begins to to speak directly to his disciples and he begins to teach them in particular while being surrounded by a huge crowd. In fact, Luke chapter 12 opens and it talks about myriads of people, thousands of people, so many people that they were were, uh, uh, climbing on one another, stepping all over one another to try to get close to Jesus, to hear Jesus, to, to, um, to, to, to see him. And Jesus speaks directly to his disciples and he teaches them. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be hypocritical, greedy warriors that are so committed to your own desires and the establishment of your own kingdom and all that this life has to offer. Instead. And this is this is a summary, obviously. You can go back and read it yourself. But instead, seek the kingdom of God. Seek the things of God. Seek his ownership and authority in your life. Seek the eternal things, those things that are, that are promised to come because you have followed Jesus. Seek him first. Store up treasures where, where wrath, moth and rust don't destroy. Live for the eternity that's promised to you, not for this temporary moment. Well, where we left off last week, Jesus is kind of, kind of bringing this to a culmination, and he's teaching in parables, and, and Peter asks a question, well, Jesus, are you, are, are you saying this to us, or are you saying this to everyone? And Jesus answers the question with more questions and then some parables, and, and it's probably some of the most frightening words that we've heard him say yet. They were difficult words. Yes, there's the servant in the master's house who is being saved. And when the, servant, or when the master returns, the servant is ready. And the master comes in and serves that servant. He, the master comes in and takes on the role of service. And, and, and that servant who is ready, when the master comes home, that servant is given all of his possessions. like all, all, that the, all that the master has, he sets him over all of them. Blesses him with this abundance that we all long for and desire. But for those servants who are in the house and connected to the house in some way that are disobedient. And not just disobedient in an ignorant way, but, but literally, he specifically calls out those, those servants who know what's going on, who, know, uh, who, who have an understanding, who have been raised up and who are, who are managing the house in some way, who have been blessed with the use of his stuff. These servants who have knowledge of what's going on but use all of his possessions for selfish gain, to eat, drink, and be merry, and to use it to oppose or to oppress and beat down other people. Those servants, he said, will be cut into pieces and thrown out to be with the unfaithful. It's not something you're going to stick on the side of a coffee cup, right? I mean, I said that last week. We're not going to be promoting. The world is not going to be focusing on that verse. They're not going to focus on the next, the next illustration that he drew out, the next part of that parable of, of these people who, would, who knew what was going on, but were just out of laziness and out of apathy for the things of the master, that they just knew what they were supposed to do, but they just didn't do it. He says they're going to receive a severe beating. And even those people who, out of ignorance, just didn't know better, still going to be beaten. You see, our culture is all about this Jesus who comes and puts us first. But denies the reality that there is a varying degree of punishment for those who don't get ready, who are not ready when he returns. We do not like to promote that part of Jesus' mission. And I wish that we could be done with that. Because it's difficult to think about those things. But the reality is, is Jesus not? Jesus wasn't done with it. In fact, from that place, from that teaching, from that difficult thing for people to hear, that the gospel does save, but while it's saving some, it's condemning others, that perspective of the gospel mission that we tend to just brush aside, from that, Jesus begins to teach another seldom-talked-about perspective. That for, the, for those who are being saved by the gospel, there still is affliction and division to endure. So that's where we're at today. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. We'll read first through 53. We'll deal with some of these perspectives. And then we'll close out with the last verses. Jesus says in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. That's not going to be a bumper sticker, right? You're probably not going to buy that and stick that on the back of your car next to your little fish with all your little other fishes that represent your children. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I came to give peace on earth? No, I tell you. But rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, and mother in law against daughter in law, and daughter in law against mother in law. It's tough. It's difficult to deal with these words. This is not a perspective that we, that we think of often. But we need to realize this. We need to recognize this. We as followers of Jesus need to understand this. Jesus did not come to please Man, he did not come to achieve your agenda or mine or anyone else's that that is not his father. He did not come to make everybody like him or live up to everyone's expectations. He did not come to do everything that every person in the world would want him to do. Jesus came to carry out a divine plan, a divine mission, if you will. This mission, if if to summarize it, to just give it to you in a sentence, this mission is to glorify God the Father and redeem and restore a people unto himself forever. That's the mission. Glorify God the Father and restore and redeem or redeem and restore a people unto himself forever. That's the mission. But even in saying that and summarizing it in that one sentence, it glosses over the fact that it is so multifaceted and there's so many, so many details that intrinsically work together in that, that we miss a lot of what the gospel mission entails. In fact, over and over, we see it in the scripture, we see it in the gospel records where Jesus is telling us why he came all of them would speak to this larger broader idea this lar- larger broader summary of the gospel but they get to the specifics they they help us see the facets in the in the gem that is the the gospel for example, in our own gospel, what we've been studying from Luke chapter four, verses eighteen through nineteen, Jesus says, re- reading out of a scroll and 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 uh, from the prophet Isaiah, he says these words: he, that he came to preach the good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to preach the Lord's favor. He said that he had come to do the, done, do those things, and and then we know he's referring to himself personally because as he finished reading the scroll, he gives it back to the to the guy who's who, who the attendant he goes to a seat, every eye is on him, he sits down and he says to them, today in your hearing, this is chapter 4, verse 21, today in your hearing those words have been fulfilled. This prophecy from Isaiah that says I, that, that, that one's coming to, to do these things, to relieve people of oppression, to, to give sight to the blind, all of these things, I'm telling you they are fulfilled in your hearing. So he's saying, I've come to do these things, and by the way, I'm coming to fulfill the prophecies that all of you have been expecting to be fulfilled. I'm the one. He gets a little more explicit with the idea that he came to fulfill the prophecies when he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I came to fulfill the law and prophets. In all the ways that the Israelites broke the law, in all the ways that they sinned against their covenant, I've come to live perfectly without sin. I'm going to do all I'm supposed to do and not do anything I shouldn't. And by the way, every prophecy that's been made about the coming Messiah is going to be fulfilled in me in my first advent or in my second. He, he, he says in, in John 10, 10, 1, that we all, this is one that gets slapped on the coffee mugs all the time, I've come to, they Have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Oh, that sounds really good. That's when we like to throw that. We throw that around all the time. I'm supposed to have the abundant life. That's why Jesus came. Luke 19.10, he says that he came to seek and to save the lost. In Matthew 20.28, 20, he gives us two perspectives. That he came not to, not to be served, but to serve. And that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. All aspects, all facets of this gospel mission that can be summarized in this one sentence. And as difficult as it might be for us to consider as a result of his work and as a result of his presence and and him bringing the gospel, that there is a reality that while people are being saved by the gospel, some are being condemned. And while we exist on this planet, as a result of the gospel, we will face both afflictions and division. Jesus' mission ends in universal and eternal peace for true Christians. But until he returns, until he returns, we must be prepared to endure affliction and division. Let's just work our way through these these four verses real quickly just so you see them in their context. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. That just is another way to say how I wish it were already kindled. I came to cast fire on the earth. That's a lot of discussion. This is one of the places I wrestled with this passage this week, trying to understand what that fire was that he was casting. And you hear, I mean, he's like casting it, throwing it on the, throwing it on the earth. I, I, I wrestled with it. There's a number of different perspectives from interpreters and commentators out there. I, this is where I settled out at. I settled out with, after really wrestling with the context and, and the overall perspective, I settled out with, with a guy named J.C. Ryle about it being afflictions. I think you can kind of see judgments in there, kind of like the, the, the judgments that are going to come at the end and where, where these events happen that reveal the truth about the hearts of men. But I think these, this, this fire is it, it, it's something that comes that's difficult. I mean, you think of fire, and it either consumes things or it refines things. And when we think of fire, we think of loss, and we think of hurt, and we think of pain. Or we think of the blessing of the heat. The light fire, the afflictions, I believe that that's where we should land out with that perspective. I think the afflictions in this life will either refine us or consume us. Everything we face, every difficult struggle and trial we face is either going to refine us or consume us. If it refines us, it's because we're a believer. If it consumes us, it's because we're trusting in something other than Christ And just consider it, because suffering is the common theme of mankind. Every one of us suffer. This is something we all share. There's not a person in this room that hasn't experienced suffering. Some of you may be in the throes of it even as we speak. If you're not, you can expect to be in it again. People in the world, people all around us, everyone suffers. It's the common theme of man. But consider this for just a second. What if the suffering that he has put in your life was not intended simply to, to squash you, but to actually make you better? I mean consider this. I mean just think of of, of refining silver and gold. You put the metal into the fire. You put the ore into the fire. And as the fire heats it and as it begins to melt and as it begins to to break down, it's not that the gold or the silver burns up, but the impurities burn away. It actually becomes more valuable. It becomes more desirable. It becomes more precious to people. What if? What if these afflictions were meant to refine us? We'll only ever know that. We'll only ever experience that if we face these afflictions trusting Christ for life. See, the reality is, is he tells us that I came to cast fire on the earth. I'm coming. I'm bringing with me fire. And it will reveal the hearts of man. It will reveal the truth about the hearts within us that reside within us. Regardless, though, of who you are, regardless of the things that happen in your life, no matter how strong you are, no matter how square your shoulders are, no matter what you think you can stand up under, no matter what you think you can endure, you and I, in our power, will be consumed by this fire. Or, as you'll see in a moment, we can trust the one who brings the fire. We can trust the one who casts the fire. So a so refining fire rather than a consuming fire. And you might say, well, that just doesn't sound fair. It just, how could that be fair? Like, I'm a good person now. I got to be a Christian, and, and, you know, I've done all these things. I said this prayer when I was a kid. I walked the aisle. I got baptized. Yeah, I've made some mistakes along the way, you know, but Jesus is a pretty good guy. He's not going to hold me accountable for all that stuff, is he? I'm like, he's not, he's not worried about me continuing in my sin. Like, he's going he's gonna to be gracious to me when I get it to the end, and he's going to accept me, and, and he saved me, but I, I can do this until he shows up. It's just not fair that he would give us affliction not fair that, that people would have to suffer as a result of sin. It's not fair that we have to suffer at all. We're really not that bad. You're right. It's not fair. It's probably not fair in a, in a way the fairness that we don't typically consider. It's not fair that a holy, righteous, perfect God who did not deserve suffering suffers. Let me just read the next verse. I came to cast fire on the earth. And he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress. See, Jesus, the perfect, holy, righteous son of God, is about to suffer. He is suffering. He is bearing the suffering. He is enduring the stress not that he deserves, not that he earned, not that he gained. Yes, it's unfair that, 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 that we don't receive the whole full weight of God's wrath. It is unfair that the fire doesn't simply consume us. It is unfair that it could do any good work in us. It is unfair that we have an opportunity to stand in glory and look and see our God with our own eyes in his presence. That is unfair, Because what we deserve from him is condemnation. What we deserve from him is being burnt up in the fire. But he says, No, I'm not going to treat you fairly. I'm going to send my son to stand in your place for your sin. I'm not going to treat you fairly. I am going to absorb the wrath that is yours. I am not going to treat you fairly. I am not going to give you what you deserve. And I am not going to treat myself fairly because, in all rights, by all rights, I have no reason to suffer, he says. But I will, so that you can be saved, and that in your suffering you no longer suffer in vain, but that you are refined, you are purified, and in you the image of his son glows brightly. That the mirror of your life (laughs) reveals Jesus. That the light that shines from you is is divine. That the light that comes off of you pictures the son of our eternal and holy and righteous God. And it gives you the hope that when he returns he will take you to be with him forever. And we see this perspective all across, again, all across the New Testament, over and over and over. Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5. These are listed on the UVersion Live event notes, and you will be able to find them there. I won't read them all, but but just reference them. Romans 5, 3 through 5 talks about what suffering does in us. It produces endurance, endurance, character, character, hope. Uh, Hebrews 12, 7, 7 through 11 talk about God using our suffering, using our struggles, using the trials that we face as discipline for us. They are Him teaching us, growing us, maturing us, making us more like him. James chapter 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, James says, count it all joy. Count it all joy as you face trials of various kinds. Because the trials for the believer end in a place of being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Nothing. One of my all-time favorites, one of, the, one of my favorites in all of Scripture that, that speak to this has to do with not just suffering in a general sense, everybody suffers, but suffering specifically for the sake of Christ, suffering specifically because we're believers. And Paul, speaking to the church in Philippi, calling them to live in this unified lives, even facing the opposition of unbelievers, calling them to live unified lives, he says this to them in chapter 1, verse 29 of the letter to the Philippians. He says, for it has been granted to you. What that means is it has been give, gifted to you. Like, Merry Christmas, Happy Birthday, here's your present. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Merry Christmas. That's one we want to give back, right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I want to give that one back. It's been gifted to you to believe in him, and it's been gifted to you that you suffer for his sake. That means the reality is his his purpose in your suffering is greater than you seeking to escape all the trials of your life. His plan for you in the trials and tribulations and difficulties you face are better than anything you could control or do for yourself to avoid that suffering. Now Think about it. Well, I can't talk about Jesus at work. I might get fired. This is big. I'm not telling anybody you do this on your own. It's not a command, right? If <laughs> You get fired this week. Well, we'll talk. I'll stand by you. But don't blame me. <laughs> but we won't talk about Jesus because we don't, be fr- we don't want to offend people. We won't talk about Jesus because we're afraid of what we might lose. We won't talk about Jesus in this gospel because, oh, that's harsh for people's ears. When it's really all about us and the suffering that we're trying to avoid. Listen, I I am I'm not immune to this. I get this. I didn't share this with the first service because you're my favorite. Don't tell them that. Please. Because I told them that earlier too. And so they No, seriously, I, I'm not immune to this. This is one of the worst weeks of ministry that I've ever endured. Not, excuse me, not kidnapped. Started last week. An email waiting for me Sunday evening that I knew was not going to be pleasant. That's angry with me because I'm calling someone to do what God has called them to do. Probably have lost any opportunity to continue to minister to this person. Simply because I'm just asking them to consider the scripture. And I'm not alone in this. I mean, there's other people in this room that are involved in this as well. So I read that Monday morning, knowing it was going to be that. I was already prepared for that. Read it Monday morning, finished reading that. 15 minutes later, I get a call from the leadership in Acts 29 about somebody that was in our ministry two years ago reporting me and the other pastors in this church for what this person deemed to be spiritual abuse, simply because we asked them to consider the truth of the Scripture. And it didn't finish. You know, Monday was pretty bad. But then on Wednesday, I found out that a dear friend fallen. A friend in the ministry. Fallen. It was difficult. I, I, I'm not saying anything to you that I don't struggle with in my own flesh. But I'm telling you that Jesus is telling you this. Because... These sufferings and these afflictions that we endure are not meant to crush. But for his people, they are made, they are given, they are gifted so that we might be like him. So that the purity that he has placed in us might become more prevalent than the impurity that resides in our flesh. This he says, I've come to cast this fire and I am going to suffer so that for my people, it doesn't consume them, but refines them. But listen, if you are here, if you are here today and you are a religious person that said the prayer when you were a child and walked an aisle and got baptized, but there's been no fruit of conversion in your life, if you are counting on showing up to the, to the judgment and, and say, well, God, I, I did the things that you expected of me. I worked hard for you. I, I, I gave every Sunday. I went to church every week. What about my son, Jesus? Well, he's a good guy. I'm glad he came. But what did he do? Well, I'm, I'm a good person. That's where you're at. Be warned of the fire that refines some and consumes others. If you're in this room and you recognize you are not a Christian and have never professed faith and not just professed it, but enacted faith and placed it in Jesus Christ alone, then beware of the fire that refines his people while it consumes others. But know this, there is hope for you yet. We're not done with the passage, there's hope for you yet. We'll go there in just a minute, but we need to finish one more piece of this passage we've just read. Because he says then, he says, okay, well, I've come to cast fire. I've got a baptism. I'm going to suffer my own suffering so that this fire will be good for you. He says, now, now, do you think that I came to bring peace? And I, 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 can, I can just almost picture it, you know, in Sunday school, you're just asking a kid, hey, do you think that I came to bring peace? And that's one everybody's going to get right. Like, oh, I, I know that one. Yes. Isn't that what the angel's saying? Isn't that what Zechariah prophesied? Isn't it what he implied when he spoke to people and he said, your faith has saved you, your faith has healed you, now go in peace. Isn't his ministry about peace? Yes, you came to bring peace. And yet he says, no. No, I came bring division. You see, the reality is, yes, he did come to bring peace. There is an ultimate, eventual, eternal peace, and in the gospel, he is drawing people together, and he is uniting them to God and to each other within the church, but as he does that, there's a reality that he is drawing them out of a world. He is pulling them out. He is putting them with him, and he is making them distinct. He is dividing them out from the world. The truth is this. When God saves us, when we trust and follow God, when we are converted from death to life, we are made new people. And division is the byproduct of a gospel that makes the dead alive. It's what happens. It comes in this life so long as this earth endures and Jesus continues to save people. He will be pulling them out of being dead and and making them alive and making them distinct in the world. There is a reality that division ensues. Division is the inherent reality of the gospel doing its work in the life of people in this fallen, sinful world. When he saves us, he takes us. Our lives are upside down. And I say they're upside down because God is at the bottom. And we're at the top. He takes us and he sets us right side up so that God is at the top. And we're at the bottom. He sets us right side up while leaving everyone around us. Oftentimes, many people around us, I should say. Leaving them upside down. He takes us and he turns us. We're walking with the flow and the current of culture and he takes us and he turns us and he doesn't stop the flow of culture but he calls us to walk differently, to live differently, to walk in a counter-cultural way. Because of this, these new priorities, these new values, these new desires, these new motives, these new natures, these, these new people that exist, we have all new perspectives And we are walking a whole new, different way. We're going a whole other direction. Inherently, in this, we will be divided from the world. As He unites us to the Father and to His people, He will be dividing us, making us distinct in the world. Now, we need to be careful here. There's some nuances we need to make sure we don't miss. First, I would say that this is God nor his gospel are to blame for division. Jesus says, yeah, I, can't. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division. But that division exists because it already exists. The division has been the, 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 uh, another one of those themes or another one of those threads that has run through every life since our fall into sin. You and I, as a people, have never known a life without division because sin divides it's just not existed this side of heaven it happened you saw it happen as early as adam and eve they see they're naked and without shame and then sin and all of a sudden they got to cover up in the very next chapter uh, cain is killing abel the reality is they're not waiting for the gospel to come into the world they're not waiting for the gospel to be proclaimed they're not waiting for for god to send his son and then going to divide they are just divided And when God comes in and changes you, he's not not making the world different. He's making you different. You no longer fit. But is he to blame for that? No. Sin is to blame for that. I appreciate J.C. Ryle here. He says this. He says, Let us never be moved by those who accuse the gospel of being the cause of strife and divisions on the earth. Such people only reveal their own ignorance when they speak like this. The gospel is not to blame. So let's not go place some blame on God. And if God didn't save me, then I wouldn't be divided from the world. But you'd be divided in the world. Because you're still a sinner. You'd just be divided for all kinds of different reasons. Living a lie, trying to cover it all up, trying to make believe that you're not divided. It's happening all around us as we speak. The gospel is not to blame, but rather man's corrupt. Heart. So God nor his gospel are to blame for division. The next thing I would point out is this is not a call to isolate from the world. When God called us into life, when he made us alive, when he made us new people, when he saved us, when we heard the gospel and we trusted Christ and we were converted and given life, God didn't say go move away from all the lost people you know. He didn't say go be in a monastery or live in a nunnery. I don't know what that's called. Maybe it's a nunnery. Don't don't isolate. We're not called to be in our own neighborhood with walls built up around us so that nobody can touch us and we can't touch anybody else. Since we've been called into life, we have also been called to be in this world but not of this world. The truth is God has left you here so that your light will shine here. Your workplace, your neighborhood, the the. the, the places that you inhabit they are places that have been reached by the gospel because you are there and he put you there so that the gospel proclamation and presence would be there not so that we could establish a kingdom not so that our kids could have the best schools not so that so that we could uh, make life easier on ourselves he put us here so that we'd be in the world but not of the world even as a distinct and divided people among the world. Next, I would point out that this isn't permission for Christians to treat people poorly just because it is an unfortunate reality that in our flesh we still act like jerks. Shame on us. The gospel is not given to us to beat people with. It's not our role to condemn people with the gospel. Remember where you were when the gospel came to you. Remember who you were when the gospel came to you. If not for Christ, you'd still be that person. So why not treat people with dignity and respect in light of the gospel? The reality is this. The gospel has enough offense already. The gospel is offensive enough on its own. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to be jerks. We don't have to treat people poorly. The reality is that we can talk to them about what God has done. And we can warn them about the, the, the coming problems and the fires that consume and the fires that refine. We can talk to them about all of those things with gracious and compassionate hearts. We can beat them and make them feel hopeless. because I'm glad I'm not as sinful as you are. Look at me and my life. Don't you wish you could be like me? That is not gospel. That is our fallen hurt, our, our fallen heart, our, our fallen man, trying to make a, a life in a place where a, a revived soul resides. Do not live from that. And this is not, obviously, a reason he picks families in particular. Because I think that inside the family, this is the place where we could possibly be known the best. If anybody, the person that knows me the best today, would have been years for years, it would have been my mom. But now today, I, not that she doesn't know me, but the person who's going to know me the best is my wife and my kids. The gospel will literally divide even the closest of relationships in the world. But it should be the gospel doing the dividing and not us and our sin. Let your risen man, let your living person be the reason people don't want to hang out with you, not your poor attitude. So, this is not a reason for us to treat anyone poorly, even family members. Rather, the gospel is the natural natural result of believing the gospel is being made separate. Just know that. But let me just say this just quickly. There's a reality that the gospel divides us from the world and unites us with Christ. It unites us with God the Father and redeems and begins the process of restoration, the refining process that that moves us to the day that when he comes back, we will go to be with him forever. And as that happens, it divides us out of the world. It unites us to God and to his people. So it gives us people to cling to. It gives us people to do life with. It gives us people who we can't have the fellowship and the intimacy that we once imagined we had in the world, but now we can have this fellowship and intimacy in the world. But let me just say this gently as I can. If your life and you are more comfortable with lost people, with people who are not Christian, and you would just prefer to be with them, and you do not feel the draw to be with God's people and among God's people, it just might be that you've never been made distinct in the world. Now, I don't know. I don't know your heart. I just want you to, I want you to wrestle with this passage. I want you to deal with the realities of what He says. The truth is, is there are people that make professions all day long and then nothing about their life changes. And they continue hanging out with the same old people, doing the same old things, not feeling a lick of anything about it. They just, oh, this is just what I'm going to do. And, you know, I said that prayer. So when Jesus gets back, I'll say, I said that prayer. Don't you remember that prayer I said? Possibly people sitting in this room that have not ever really even performed religiously. They just don't like Christian people. I like Jesus, but I don't like his people. Well, you may not know the Jesus that you say you like. So just wrestle with this. Be honest in this. If you are more comfortable in the world among people who are not Christian, not, I'm not talking about being friends with them. I'm, please don't hear me saying that. Be friends with them. But if your deepest and most intimate friendships you find And are able to hold or with non-Christian people. And you feel no draw or find no unity among Christian people. It might be because you're not Christian. But there is hope for you yet. And I'm thankful that we get to deal with that now. And Jesus keeps teaching. It says, he also said the crowds. This is verse 54. We'll keep reading. He also said to the crowds. Now I want you to notice there's an obvious audience change here. So, so here he's talking to his disciples. Peter's not sure who he's talking to. He asked the question. Jesus is like, oh, well, it's, it's got application for everybody, but specifically I've been speaking to my disciples, but there's application for everyone here. But now he turns his attention to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? I would just give you this piece of advice. If you're seeking to evangelize someone, don't start with hypocrites. Jesus could do that because he's Jesus, but... I wouldn't, I, that's just not where I would encourage you to start. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why not? Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why? Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, I tell you. You will never get out until you have paid every last penny. See, the fire consumes until there's nothing left to burn. You'll never get out until you've paid every last penny. Penny, this audience change. I think what happens is so Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's helping them see that they, as his people, are going to endure affliction and division. Even as respondent, as a people who are faithfully trusting and following Jesus, they are going to deal with this. But now he turns and he becomes evangelistic. He begins to speak to the crowds. And yes, this is true. I've come to bring division. I've come to cast fire. I have got this baptism to go through. But this is for you too, he says. I think his intention is to become evangelistic and call people to understand something deeper, something more. So to take their eyes off of their temporary existence, to, to look away from the things of this world. I think he's helping them see that his mission provides hope for them as well. See, Jesus' mission makes clear that he is the Savior that we need. We will trust and follow him. Will we trust and follow him and help others trust and follow him. He says the reality is this is no different than reading, the, this is no different than, than predicting the weather. It's as simple as predicting the weather. So, so I think it was Tuesday night, I walk out, and, or it was Tuesday afternoon, I walk out, it's dusk, and I, I walk out, and out in the northwest, there is dark, ominous, nasty looking clouds, like the kind of clouds you expect to start hearing tornado sirens at and stuff like that. It was nasty looking. And I went out there and I was like, whoo, a storm's coming. So that night is Tuesday night. The band has practice. My wife is in in the band, so she's here at practice. We don't leave. It's about, I think, probably 8 or 8:30. We get out of here. And it is pouring rain. But I wasn't surprised. Now we decided not to go to the gym because nobody likes to go to the gym in a storm, right? It's a good reason not to go to the gym. So we didn't go to the gym. But it was a storm. We weren't, I wasn't surprised by it because I'd seen the clouds coming. I knew a storm was, was on its way. I knew there was a reason not to go to the gym. So we didn't go to the gym. On the way home, it was so bad. So bad. that uh, it, it was hard to see the road in front of us. We were in separate cars. And at one point, she's ready to pull over. Just as she's about to pull over and onto a side street, lightning strikes a pole that's next to sparks are flying. It's crazy. But not surprised. Because I knew the storm was coming. He says, "All you got to do is interpret your times that way. Inter- interpret the current times, and let's just do that. I mean, we don't even have to put ourselves back in that day because the same things that they've been dealing with, we're still dealing with. None of that's changed. Sickness and death, still here. Still struggle with it. And we don't have as much control or much power to heal ourselves as we certainly like to. Eventually, we're all going to die." And when we get sick, have you heard of some of the side effects of the the medicines that we take? It's terrible. It'll kill you. For something else, you'll be healed of this one thing, but you'll die because of this other. Chemotherapy, I mean to make fun of this, my dad is dealing with chemotherapy, chemotherapy himself, so I'm not trying to make light, but I've known people that have died because on chemo, they got so weak that they got sick of something else and they couldn't get better and they died. Because chemo is poison. We're trying hard to extend our lives and we can't do a thing about it. How about about these searches for identity and the ways that we struggle with desiring to to, to know who we are and and dealing with anxiety and depression and worry. We know they dealt with it then because Jesus addressed it. Don't be anxious. It's interesting to me though. As far as we've come as far, much advancement has occurred in this world and as much technology we have at our disposal. We are more anxious and depressed and fighting to understand who we are than people in undeveloped countries in the world. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing in our own power and in our own mind. and the more we depend on ourselves, the worse it gets. How about how we treat one another? For Just an example. Are you surprised that we still treat each other poorly in the world we live today? Are you surprised that we're coming up with even more divisions and ways to define our divisions and how distinct and different we are in this world we live in today that's ruled by sin? Everything, every socioeconomic position or perspective, we, we put weight on it. Everything from race to how much money we got in a bank account. is it any surprise? Let's just deal with I mean it's a hot one. Is it any surprise that in a sinful world that we treat each other poorly because of the color of our skin or the way we express ourselves ethnically? It's unfortunate. It's sad, it's pitiful. But I think if we say we're surprised, we have a misunderstanding of who people are. We are broken, sinful, depraved people who desperately need a Savior. And Jesus is showing us that he is it. The best we can do is is, is put a Band-Aid on a gaping and gushing wound. It might slow it down for a little bit. It might cover it up for just a moment. But eventually, we will bleed out. We will be destroyed. But consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Everything he did was restorative. Everything he did was putting things back together. Re, uh, re, re, um, not reimagining, but re, restoring, repairing the image of God in his creation. He made the blind see the deaf, hear the lame, walk the dead, live. He healed people in their minds. He cast demons out of them. He came to people and forgave them of their sins. He did what nobody else could do and everything he was about, everything that he was motivated by, every function that he served brought restoration until people rejected him. And then the division was clear. Count on your band-aid over your gaping, gushing wound, and one day you will not have enough blood to, keep bleed, to continue bleeding or breathing. The fire one day will come and destroy you. The storm at some point that you see raging will roll over you. Are you ready? See, the thing is this. Listen, the thing is this. The things that we're trying in this world are not working. power of Jesus Christ to glorify his Father and redeem and restore a people unto himself forever. The gospel will, and it does. Quit trying to fix your life. Quit, quit, quit depending on your own power and your own might. Trust in the one who has fixed your life. and Giving you the hope of eternity. Christian, that's what he's calling you to. Don't seek the things of this world. Don't live for the temporary uh, fulfillment. Don't give yourself to the pursuit of things that rot and fade. Live for eternity. Make him preeminent and primary in your life. Yes, there will be affliction, but they will refine you. Yes, there will be division, but, but, but he will use you in the midst of it to call people out of their sin and to be one of his people. A non-Christian, be warned. Every, every circumstance in this world around you is showing you that we are not capable of fixing our deepest problems or satisfying our deepest desires. They're indicating a storm that is coming. Non-Christian, whether you are religious and never really trusted or whether you've never even understood what it means to trust him. Non-Christian, there's still hope for you yet. And I think that's exactly what he, de- what he depicts in the next passage, the next parable. There is an accuser And right now, so long as you're standing opposed to God, He has called you guilty. And all the struggles of your life are what you deserve, and there's much more coming. But would you hear His call before you show up at the day of court, before you get there and you are convicted and you are called guilty? Would you settle with Him now? I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I don't deserve this. I understand if you'll treat me fairly. And he'll say, no, I'm not going to treat you fairly. Because I stood in your place. And I took your sin. And I took your shame. And I took your suffering. And I drank it every last bit. What I'm going to give you is life. Non-Christian, will you trust Jesus? I plead with you. I plead with you today. Believe in him and him alone. Let's pray. (sighs) Father, I confess my own failures, my own weaknesses and, you know, my struggles, temptations, even not looking to you in the midst of very difficult days. But I am grateful. I'm grateful that in your gospel, I am forgiven. And I am being purified. And I am being made ready for the day that you return. And I am so grateful that most of the people in this room, maybe all of the people in this room, you know hearts, I don't. But that there's people in this room that are there with me And we're standing together, united, even as we have been divided out from the world. Able to stand together, bear burdens together, walk together, encourage one another, love one another, serve one another, ensure that we have each other. Grateful, grateful that as we experience division now, we know that there is coming a day when there will be nothing but peace. Peace. I'm praying, Father, I would ask even now that your spirit would deal with the hearts of any here who might not be believing. Beyond something that they did as a kid, beyond something that they think that they can do to make you impressed with them, beyond their own flesh and the lies that we tell ourselves, Father, would you deal with them now? Show them their sin, call them to repent and make them alive